You're listening to audio from Mercy's Door Community Church in Mascouda, Illinois. If you'd like to get more information about Mercy's Door, we'd love for you to connect with us on Facebook or check us out at mercysdoor.org. Amen. So as you heard, today I'm going to be diving into this section. My Bible has it entitled, I and the Father are One. Now in this section, uh, there's a bit of a bold statement alert, right? Bold statement alert. And this all comes wrapped in the context of this is Jesus' third trip to Jerusalem. It's his third interaction, altercation with the Jews. And now, this is roughly two months after what we read in verse 21. So in verse 21, that ends his kind of discourse with the Feast of Booths, which began all the way back in chapter 7. Now in uh, verse 22 through 42, this embarks on the Feast of Dedication. There isn't an exact time as to when this is occurring, but we uh, we can extrapolate and understand this is about two months of time has passed from the Feast of Booths to now the Feast of Dedication. I'll tell you what, Jews were good at partying, right? They liked their feasts. Okay, so now it's roughly mid-October to mid-December. Before we begin, I want to share with you a quick story. Uh, it's this story of how my, my wife and I got engaged, okay? So it's a, it's a unique story. So May 2010, uh, we officially started dating after a few years of friendship. We had a long conversation in which uh, we DTR'd, DTR'd. Now, we come in a, in a highly military context, so I'm giving to throw out some acronyms here. DTR means define the relationship, okay? We define the relationship and that we wanted our friendship that was now moving into a relationship of boyfriend-girlfriend to have purpose, that we were going to be going somewhere with it, and ultimately going somewhere with that meant that this was going to end in marriage, that was our intention. So first date, real talk, real conversation. I don't, I don't know if necessarily this is the best uh, practice to talk about on the first date, but it's what we did. It worked for us. We were at Salmon's Bakery in Murray, Kentucky. For lack of a better lingo, we agreed to terms. All right? We agreed that, in fact, we were FBO, Facebook official, all the other all the other geriatric millennials like me would understand FBO. We were, we were Facebook official. We were going steady. But with that began a source of conflict for us because we had communicated to each other a very serious commitment that we were in this relationship for one reason. That one reason was to pursue marriage, understanding that this was going to culminate in marriage, but the source of conflict was our words, when was this going to happen? So flash forward a month, it's now June, and I was living and working in Orlando, Florida at the time, and I had planned this entire date day because I wasn't going to see Kat for nearly a month. Uh, and so I planned the whole day, she was leaving the next day, and so I had a little bit of time to kill. I had this big grand plan that I thought was really sweet and kind and, and thoughtful, but I needed to kill some time before we got to that part. So I thought, well, it'd be a great time. Let's go to Ripley's Believe It or Not. Okay, this is an amusement area. But turns out high humidity, high heat, high people, and a lot of loud noises isn't very conducive to have a, a romantic, intimate time 
of get, just hanging out with your soon-to-be fiancé. Turns out that that's not a good plan. So we called an audible. We go to the movie theater. And again, all this is, we're just buying time, okay? We go to the movie theater. We see the, the, the critically acclaimed Toy Story 3, okay? <laughs> and it was perfect. It was dark. It was cold. The air conditioning was on. We got some food. Total 180 from Ripley's, believe it or not, high humidity, just disgusting. I was, it was nasty, okay? This was perfectly timed because my wife, if you get to know her at all, you'd know that she grew up loving Harry Potter. She read all the Harry Potter books as soon as they came out, and so she was thrilled to know of the movies. She watched all the movies. She was very, very excited. This was the year that Universal Studios in Orlando, Florida was going to be building Harry Potter World. Okay? This wasn't open to the public yet, but it was very, very exciting. So as soon as we finish this movie, I say, hey, I got a surprise for you. I can't take you to Harry Potter World because it's not open yet, but I got the next best, best thing. I booked a helicopter ride, a helicopter tour of Universal Studios, and we got to fly over the top of all the construction, like seeing Hogwarts, seeing where the, the you know, muggle stuff, I'm not, I don't know, you know, I don't remember that stuff. So. <laughs> We got to see all this stuff from a high up top. It was just really, really cool. She loved it. Right after that, we had, you know, continuing on with the plan I had, I had a picnic. We went to this place. Uh, it's actually a church that we were attending at the time. It's a beautiful location, beautiful willow trees, Spanish moss hanging. We went and uh, had a picnic on this dock of this pond that overlooked all of the church buildings that were there. I mean, beautiful, beautiful scene. So at this point, I, we had some snacks and hanging out, talking, chit-chatting, talking about the rest of the summer. And out of my pocket, I grabbed two pennies, two coins. And I said, you know what? Uh, we won't get to hang out like this for a long while. Let's make this gesture. Let's, let's throw our pennies in the pond and let's make a wish. Okay, let's make a... Now, sidebar. Um, I don't believe in wishing wells, okay? I don't believe in this, so don't email me. Don't, like, go on, you know, places and say, hey, our pastor says wishing wells are the thing to do. Okay, I'm not, it's a gesture. It was just like a silly thing we did. So grab these two coins. We wait for a moment. We're praying. We think. We throw the, we throw the penny in. A few awkward moments of silence later, I go, well, what'd you wish for? And she looks at me and says, you know how wishes work. If you tell, then they won't come true, right? So we, I said, okay, all right, fine. And then I just like, another brief, awkward silence happens again. I'm like, well, aren't you going to ask me what I wished for? And she said, okay, well, Brett, what did you, what did you wish for? And that's when I said, I wished that you would say yes to the next question I asked you. And I reached my hand in my pocket again and I grabbed her engagement ring and I asked her to marry me. Spoiler alert, she said yes. Yeah. yeah, thank you, thank you. We've been married now for 12 years, three beautiful kids. I'm so thankful um, that I totally, totally, completely outkicked my coverage there. Just five months later, that November, we were married. So pretty quick. Pretty quick situation. But you see, what was causing the large source of conflict in Kat in my relationship was that the words we had spoken and committed to each other weren't lining up with the fact that we weren't married yet. 
our actions hadn't shown that we were serious about what we said. See, the same thing is happening here in this account in John with Jesus. He had done all of these works, but now the people are asking plainly, are you the Messiah? Are you the Christ? So this morning, I want us to take a look at this scripture through that understanding. I broke this section down into four parts. We're going to look at the feast, the sheep, the stoning, and the retreat. We're going to look at the feast, the sheep, the stoning, and retreat. Verse 22. At that time, the feast of dedication took place at Jerusalem. It was winter. Jesus was walking in the temple in the colonnade of Solomon. So the Jews gathered around him and said to him, How long will you keep us in suspense? If you're the Christ, tell us plainly. Jesus answered them, I told you and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me. But you do not believe because you are not among my sheep. Now, a little bit of context here. What is the Feast of Dedication? Okay. This Feast of Dedication is what we call modern day Hanukkah. Hanukkah, you've probably heard of Hanukkah, the lighting of the menorah, it's the color is blue, it's celebrated for eight days around December. A lot of people consider Hanukkah is the Jewish version of Christmas. Gifts are given and celebrated, and so in this celebration, the Feast of Dedication, there is historical basis, although it is not in the Old Testament. This happens, <clears throat> excuse me, in the 400-year period in between the end of the Old Testament and the beginning of the New Testament. Okay, we call this period the intertestamental period of the church. And so at this time, in 168 BC, this man, he was a Syrian general. His name was Antiochus IV. Now Antiochus was a very, very good general. And what he did was he conquered Jerusalem. In conquering Jerusalem, he killed 40,000 Jews. He enslaved another 40,000 Jews. He desecrated the temple. He imposed Greek culture, Greek thought, Greek worship of the Jews to Greek gods. He set up pagan altars to Zeus, the god Zeus and Jupiter. He burnt the scrolls of the Torah. All Jewish customs, holidays, traditions were denied. If you were to do the, if you were to offer any sacrifices, they must be made to the Greek gods under penalty of death and torture. Under the priesthood of Mattathias, a man named Judah, later to be called Judah the Maccabee, led a revolt against the Syrians to claim back the temple. This was, in fact, the last great deliverance of the Jewish people. Okay, so what does this all have to do with the context that we're talking about today? Why is this significant? At the height of his leadership, Antiochus IV renamed himself. And he named himself, he said, I will be now called Antiochus Epiphanes. Why is that significant? Because that literally means God manifest. Okay, I think this is pretty, pretty interesting. On this feast of dedication that was celebrated just 200 years prior, now Jesus is making a claim that this tyrant of a general was making. We ought not miss the timing, the poetry, the sovereignty of it all. 
on this very same holiday that commemorates the Syrian general, Jesus is making a profession of his deity. They say, tell us plainly. They don't really want to know. They just are looking for an opportunity once again to get rid of this guy who's caused such a fuss. They really wanted a different Messiah. Jesus says, I told you, and you don't believe. Now, up to this point in his public ministry, uh, Jesus had not publicly said that I am the Messiah. He had, he had told this privately to the woman at the well. He had told this privately uh, to his disciples, but he hadn't out in public said, I am the Messiah. Okay, so he had implied as much through his works and through his teachings, but he had never outright said it. So they are beckoning him, tell us plainly. I love that it says, um, it says, how long will you keep us in suspense? I like laugh every time I read that, just thinking about, the, if any people group were used to suspense, right? The Jews, like all this time in captivity, all this time in the wilderness, all this time waiting on a Savior, and now they're like, hey, come on, just, we can't wait any longer. Tell us plainly. The works, but he said this, he said, I told you, and you don't believe. The works I do in my Father's name bear witness about me. Okay, so what works? What works is he talking about? Now, strictly in the book of John up to this point, Jesus has done miracles and works that were healing miracles, but he's also shown and demonstrated authority over nature. Okay, in John chapter 4, he heals the official son in Capernaum who was close to death. In John chapter 5, he heals the man at the pool of Bethesda who thought, if I just get into this pool, I'll be healed of being lame. He was lame his whole life, but Jesus doesn't put him in a pool. He says, just get up. I have authority to heal you. In John chapter 9, a couple of weeks ago, we read he, he spit in the ground and he made this blind man see. And next, next week, we're going to look at the story of Lazarus, where he even commands dead people, get up. It's incredible. He shows a demonstration of his power over nature. In John chapter 2, he turns water into wine. John chapter 6, he walks on water. He feeds the 5,000. He causes matter to exist where it wasn't before existing to feed all these people. And later on in the book of John in chapter 21, we'll see that he has a huge catch of fish once again. Now, these are just encounters up to this point in the book and the account of John. We can read in Matthew, Mark, and Luke many other miracles that he has done, uh, healing the demon-oppressed man, healing other children, the, the woman who touches the robe of his cloth. All of these are his works that have been done, but John only gives us these. And later on, the last line of the book of John. Now, there are also many other things that Jesus did were every one of them written, I suppose that the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. John 21, 25. I think that's a really creative way for John to say that I couldn't write down all of the things that he did. All of the things that my eyes showed me. I, I can't even fathom, I can't even think about writing them all down because there wouldn't be enough books in the world to hold it all. These are the works that he's talking about when he's talking to the Jews. His works should encourage our faith that this is our Lord 
and that these works and his, him doing so is only is out of sight and out of mind as we allow them to be in our everyday life. This is a great time to pause here and restate what Jesus just said to these, to these people. He says, I told you and you don't believe. Here's a question for reflection for you. What has Jesus already told you and yet you don't believe? Has he talked to you, told you about your provision? I will provide for you, and yet you don't believe him. Has he told you that he will protect you, that he will give you a purpose, that he is going to care for you, that he's going to give you community, and yet you don't believe? What has he told you? When do we miss the works of God in our own life. You see, the Jews here were so ignorant of God, they didn't recognize the works of God. When do we do that? You know, it's a great exercise, shameless plug, to work out with your gospel community. When you're thinking about, as we know Christ and we believe the gospel, the gospel changes everything. All the gospels, the implications of the gospel change every fiber of our life and how we live it. When do we not believe what Jesus has said? Work that out. I remember in my youth and my innocence first starting, I, I didn't grow up in a Christian home. I, we rarely went to church. I had no biblical background for this. So when I became a Christian, it was it was hot and heavy. I read everything that I could get my hands on, and I was very, very excited to learn and understand who my God was that had done this great act of love for me by dying on a cross for me. So I was at a seminary in Louisville, and there was a Q&A time at this conference, and uh, in my innocence, I, I said, I got a question, and th- I have a question for the dean of theology of this seminary, okay? And of, of course, I, I come up and bumbling, stumbling over my words, I say, Mister, I just read this passage, and Jesus says, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. My question to you is, why wouldn't he just come as a huge giant or a huge angel standing miles high and proclaim this over all the world? I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. Why did he come as a human? Why didn't he just do this and make it very, very obvious? Right? That was an honest question at the time. His response uh, might not be what you'd expect. Very gently, uh, I think sensing my youth, sensing my innocence, he says, you know, even if he had did that, young man, there still probably would be people who wouldn't believe. I think this is summed up in exactly what Jesus says. You do not believe because you are not among my sheep. Verse 27, let's read on. My sheep hear my voice and they know them, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. Bold statement alert, right? I and the Father are one. He finally has come out and say it. So verse 27, recounting of all that Jesus has done up to this point should bring great comfort. Why? 
because the shepherd, he knows the sheep. They follow him. The same shepherd who has, in my notes I put, insert miracles listed above here. Okay, This shepherd who has healed the blind, who has fed the 5,000, who has done all these miracles, all of this power is demonstrated that the winds and the waves and food, nothing can contain His power and authority. The same shepherd is the one who knows His sheep. That should bring us great comfort. What they need, He knows what they need. He knows where they are. He knows what's coming for them. This is the insanely loving part, lovely part of being a Christian is that we can know this God who's done this thing for us, all these things for us, but also that we can be known by this God and he still loves us. It's incredible, incredible truth. We mentioned this last week, but it's worth repeating. You know, Palestinian shepherds, they might, they might risk danger for their sheep, but you know, at the end of the day, they're going to go home. At the end of the day, they're going to be with their families. They're not going to risk their life for a sheep. Compare that to what our good shepherd has demonstrated for us. Verse 28, if you take anything away, hear this resounding, the greatest promise in Scripture. I give them eternal life. They will never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. One commentator says that there's no stronger passage in the Old or New Testament that exists for the absolute eternal security of every true believer, every true Christian. When he says never perish, they will, I will give them eternal life and they will never perish. This is important too if you understand language because this double negative stresses the absurdity that this would ever be untrue. The use of the language at the time, to a double negative, that we can, take, we can believe this. This is absurd if this was untrue. The sheep's ultimate security rests in the shepherd's care that no one will be snatched from his hand. Just think of this. No one can steal from God. No one can steal from our God. That should bring us great comfort as sheeps following the shepherd. Now, I wouldn't be a worship pastor if I didn't tell you to go listen to a song, right? Like a, a direct application every single time I preach. There's a great hymn we love to sing at home a lot. It's called, He Will Hold Me Fast. To hold fast means to not change your mind about something, but in this since it literally means he will hold us fast. My favorite verse from this song goes like this. Those he saves are his delight. Christ will hold me fast. Precious in his holy sight, he will hold me fast. He'll not let my soul be lost. His promises shall last. Bought by him at such a cost, he will hold me fast. Can I speak some life into you right now? 
When can you have this comfort? When do you allow yourself the comfort that you are held? Nothing can snatch you out of His hands, even yourself. Your failures, your sins cannot take you out of the hand of the shepherd where the world would say that what we do proves our identity. Jesus' teachings share with us that it is His works, it's what He has done that prove our identity as sheep. His works prove it. Does this make us complacent? Does this give us license to do whatever we want? Of course not. Of course not. Our new identity is we follow the shepherd. Just think about it. It's not work that a sheep would follow its shepherd. They follow the shepherd closely because they know that the shepherd will take care of them. They know the shepherd leads the sheep to pasture. They know the food is going to be where the shepherd goes. The water is going to be where the shepherd goes. Where the protection is where the shepherd goes. So the responsibility of the sheep, follow the shepherd. Follow your shepherd. Don't follow me. Don't follow Pastor Dude or Pastor Mike or Pastor Adam. Follow us as long as we are following the shepherd. We are already the shepherd's sheep. The sheep don't try to garner favor with the shepherd. The sheep don't say, oh, if I'm a good sheep, then my shepherd will lay down my, his life for me. If, I, if I'm a good sheep, then that sounds a lot like the elder brother of the prodigal son. Church, hear me. When you are at your absolute worst, Christian, your shepherd has a hold on you. He's not letting go. Rejoice. So back to back, Jesus makes mention. No one will snatch them out of my hand. And this culminates in this oneness statement. He says, no one will snatch them out of my hand. And then he backs it up by saying, God, who is greater than anything, you will, they will not be able to snatch you out of his hand. Why is he doing this? The emphasis is that the shepherd of the sheep, Jesus, and the owner of the sheep, God the Father, are in one accord, achieving one purpose. Then he says, I and the Father are one. What does this mean? It's important here. Again, language is important. The Greek translation of the Hebrew here is that Jesus used the neutral uh, noun value similar to other languages noun values can be masculine or feminine and you know la manzana el gato you know d- these different i don't know why i used apple and cat but um, we use these different um, masculine feminine articles to help understand uh, the, the noun value well he's using here a neutral value and so what he is saying is that me, the Father, and I are one. We are one in essence, we are one in nature, but we are not the same person. This is a direct teaching of the Trinity. 
Okay? We can go down a rabbit hole on that, but not today. Okay? This is important. Not the same person, but the same in essence and nature. This is why all throughout John, Jesus has made all these I am claims, right? He so famously makes. Now, I'm a bit of a, a resource uh, squirrel. I like when the, when the rucks were in town, he used this analogy of like squirreling away gold. Well, I like to squirrel away nuggets of like, oh, that's a good resource. Ooh, I like that a lot. I, and so I have a resource. If you're like a squirrel like me and you like those kind of things, I have this graph. These are the I am claims. I can send this to you. You can take a snap a picture of it. These are all the claims that Jesus makes in John and that um, Leon Morris, he's a New Testament scholar, he says this, now to the Jewish ears, this I am aroused associations of the divine. The Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament, the expression is frequently used by God himself. There is little doubt that John's repeated use of this expression is meant to awaken these divine associations. The bread of life, the light of the world, the gate, the good shepherd, the resurrection, the way, the truth, the life, the true vine. Contrast this to what the Persian general Antiochus was saying of all times in all of history for Jesus to make public his deity he chose now Jesus gives his hearers far more than a plain statement hope that's obvious to us verse 31 the Jews picked up stones again to stone him Jesus answered them I have shown you many good works from the father for which of them are you going to stone me the Jews answered him, It is not for a good work that we are going to stone you, but for blasphemy, because you being a man make yourself God. Jesus answered them, Is it not written in your law, I said you are gods? If he called them gods to the whom the word of God came and scripture cannot be broken, do you say of him whom the Father consecrated and said unto the world, You are blaspheming because I said I am the Son of God? If I am not doing the works of my Father, then don't believe me. But if I do them, even though you do not believe me, believe the works, that you may know and understand that the Father is in me, and I am in the Father. And again, they sought to arrest him, but he escaped from their hands. The Jews had got what they wanted. There's no doubt that they understood what Jesus was claiming here. Again, of all days, feast of dedication to do so. This is John's third record of the Jews attempting to stone Jesus publicly. Now, under Levitical law, Levitical law, there was specific situations where public stoning was permitted. However, at this time in history, uh, capital punishment, as we will find out in a few short chapters later, was to be done by the Roman law, under Roman law, and it was to be carried out by the Romans. So without due process, Jesus handles the situation. And I love when Jesus does this throughout his ministry. He demonstrates like in verse 34, they're using scripture, they're using the law to try to condemn this man who is the law. Right? It's like, I, you think you know the word? I am the word. You're not going to pull a fast one on me. 
right? So I love this. Um, let me give you some clarity. When I first read this, the first thing I wrote down in my notes was like, this sounds like a bunch of legal jargon. I don't understand. It sounds like a couple lawyers that going head to head here. So let me, let me get some clarity. Verse 34, Jesus says, I said you are God's. What he is doing, he is verbatim quoting Psalm 82, verse 6. He's quoting this psalm of Asaph, wherein the law that they knew so well, people, judges, or heavenly beings who set out to do the will of God could have been referred to as gods. So, his argument is that the Old Testament word God can be legitimately used here in this situation. He wanted them to see that the divine terms that he was using to describe himself were terms that the Old Testament itself used of human beings. His point was that it was inconsistent for the Jews to claim the Old Testament as their authority and then disregard something about it because they didn't agree with it. Don't we do that? There's something we hear, we read in the Word, and instead of saying, oh, amen, amen, brother, we say, ugh. He himself was not blaspheming. He was showing his authority, his command over Scripture because he, in fact, was the Word incarnate. Again, the work of God to keep with the analogy he says, both father and son are committed to the perfect protection and preservation of the sheep. Ultimately, that purpose is to make manifest the supreme glory of God. Verse 35, there's a little cutout here that says, Scripture cannot be broken. What does that mean? Now, when Pastor Adam and Pastor Michael planted Mercy's Door all those years ago, the hope and our, our current hope now is that as you see and read Scripture, I can like talk normal now. With the, as we see and read Scripture, our hope is that from creation in Genesis to recreation in Revelation, you would see the overarching story of God entering earth and redeeming a people for himself by the person and work of Jesus Christ on the cross. From Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, all the way to Revelation, the story is about one man and one work to redeem a people to himself. That's the hope. This is a very important statement that Jesus makes. I guess, I mean, as if all statements Jesus makes aren't important. But this is very important. Very, very important. All Scripture, we read in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16, all Scripture is breathed of God. All Scripture is breathed of God. In Hebrews 4.12, this Word is living and active, sharper than a double-edged sword. It penetrates to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrows, and it judges the thoughts and the attitudes of our heart. This word cannot be broken. If this word wasn't living and active, if this word wasn't breathed out by the mouth of God, this would be the most historically accurate 
document that the world has on ancient times. But in fact, it cannot be broken, and this is the very word of God. All scripture is God-breathed, useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, training, and righteousness, so the man of God will be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Every word cannot be broken. It's important to call back my story with my wife. Jesus had cleared it up that not just his actions, but assertions. He, there's no room for assumptions anymore of who he's claiming to be. He's shown it, and now he's said it. Again, verse 39, they sought to arrest him, but he escaped from their hands. This is kind of another Houdini act by Jesus, right? This is the third time when he was very close to being captured or very close to being taken in, and he slips away. Now, John doesn't uh, tell us why. He doesn't give us clarity as to what was the occurrence here, why did he slip away. But what we do know, John is clear about, is that Jesus could not be killed before his appointed time. In chapter 7 and chapter 8 were John's other accounts of Jesus being confronted by the Jews and the Pharisees, and he again evaded their their capture. This is something that has just been pounding in my heart. I'm so excited to share it with you. But last week, Pastor Adam, he read uh, in, in chapter 10, verses 17 and 18. It says this, I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it back up again. John is clear that Jesus could not be killed before his appointed time. There's this scene, gives me chills when I think, there's this scene in the Passion of the Christ where Jesus is on trial, he's badly beaten, he's tore apart, he's a bloody mess in front of the Roman prefector, the Roman governor Pilate. The crowds are shouting, the crowds are murmuring, this is the man, we finally got him, kill him! Pilate's like, I don't think there's anything, I don't think he did anything wrong. And in the movie, Passion of the Christ, he looks to Jesus and he says, talk to me, man. I have the power right now to crucify you or to set you free. Talk to me. In a bloodied mess with a crown on his head, he looks up at Pilate. He says, you have no power over me. Only that which my Father has given me. The resolve, the love that our God shows us knowing every day that he walks this earth what was coming every day and still sets his face towards the cross because the story isn't over he has yet to defeat sin and defeat death on the cross for you and for me and for a lost world the shepherd hasn't laid his life down yet that's why he evaded their capture he retreats Verse 40, 
he went away again across the Jordan to a place where John had been baptizing at first. This is John the Baptist. And there he remained, and many came to him, and they said, John did no sign, but everything that John said about this man was true, and many believed in him there. Now this area where John was baptizing was called Perea, or Bethany. It's roughly two miles away from Jerusalem. It's the northeastern part of the Sea of Galilee. And I love that it says, many came to him. Sheep follow the shepherd. Doesn't matter where, doesn't matter when, doesn't matter how. Sheep follow the shepherd. Everything John the Baptist said was true. This realization was from the people. Now, 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 20, it says, For all the promises of God find their yes in him. Yes, in Jesus. Okay? I, I think it would be a very interesting case study if you just studied the character of John the Baptist and like his whole life is so interesting. John testifies and obeys Jesus, but he leaves all the work to Jesus. He's just a faithful role player. He just is playing his role in humility, awaiting something far greater than him. One commentator said it like this, People were not to believe in John, but through him. John's purpose was to draw them to belief in Christ. You see, the witness of John the Baptist continued to bear fruit even after his death because he pointed people to Jesus. And Jesus never disappoints. When you're in Christian, when you're in doubt, like, what is my purpose? What do I do with my life? Point people to Jesus. They will not be disappointed. He is the good shepherd. That's our calling too, brothers and sisters. So at this end of uh, 42 here in chapter 10, scholars agree that this concludes Jesus' public ministry. But he still did things. He did things in public, but not to the scale he once had now. He focuses more on his ministry to and with the disciples and those who were following him more closely. So in summary, Jesus' public ministry to the Jews, to the, to the world, he kept, hear shouts of, he kept hearing shouts of, give us a sign, show us. Did signs, showed them. Okay, well, no, 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 just tell us. Tell us, are you the Christ? Are you the one that was promised? I and the Father are one. They didn't believe. This is the cycle of Jesus' public ministry. Does that make his ministry a failure? Absolutely not, because the sheep hear. You want a new sign. You want a new Messiah because you want a Messiah that does what you want. You want a vending machine. You want a Santa Claus. You don't want me. And I love, I love the last verse. And many believed in him there. Many came to him. Many heard the voice of the shepherd for the first time. And many believed. Church, our God 
can do more before you get to your car than you could do in a lifetime. This is our shepherd. The one who demonstrates his power and authority over sickness and life and nature and then at the same time willingly lays it down for you and me. That's great news. So, as we conclude this morning, he brings clarity to the masses that all these signs and everything he has said back up this plainly made statement that he, in fact, is the promised one. He is the Messiah. Many people believed in him. So church, as you hear this word proclaimed over you this morning, hear this quote also. This is from Tim Keller. He says, God sees us as we are, he loves us as we are, and he accepts us as we are. But by his grace, he does not leave us as we are. We're going to enter in time of prayer in, in closing and reflection and here's what I'd love for you to do I just want you to reflect on this question what is the good shepherd speaking to you through the spirit right now what is he reminding you of what is he teaching you again have you heard the voice of your shepherd See, all of this, all of this truth, the greatest promise in all of Scripture is contingent on one thing. You're His sheep. Are you His sheep? You hear the voice of your shepherd even now inviting you to come. Find rest, find hope, find life in me. If you don't know the answer to that question, please talk to someone. Please talk to me. Please talk to Pastor Adam, Pastor Mike. Please talk to your gospel community leader. And then we'll prepare our hearts for communion. If you would, bow your heads with me and let's pray.